It's now the dream. Verse 29. As for you, O king, while you were in your bed and your thoughts turned to future things, the revealer of mysteries has made known to you what will take place. As for me, this mystery is revealed to me, to me, not because I possess more wisdom than any other living person, but so that the king may understand the interpretation and comprehend the thoughts of your mind. Once again, Daniel says, it wasn't given to me because I'm that awesome. It was given to me so that you may know Yahweh. Right there, Daniel tells you the reason why Nebuchadnezzar was given a dream. Because God was drawing Nebuchadnezzar to him and wanted him to know him. One of the other things I tell my students, the one thing that makes Yahweh absolutely unique and different, well, the other thing that makes Yahweh absolutely unique and different is he's the only God that will pursue you no matter what. He will pursue you to the ends of the earth, and no matter how horrible your sin is, no matter how much you've walked away from God, he will keep pursuing you until you come to him or you die. And God, Daniel says he's pursuing you, Nebuchadnezzar. He's pursuing you. Will you respond? Verse 31, You, O king, were watching as a great statue, one of impressive size and extraordinary brightness, was standing before you. Its appearance caused alarm. As for the statue, its head was of fine gold, its chest and arms were of silver, its belly and thighs were of bronze, its legs were of iron, its feet were partly of iron and partly of clay. You were watching as the stone was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its iron and clay feet, breaking them to pieces. Then the iron, clay, bronze, silver, gold were broken into pieces without distinction and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors that the wind carries away. Not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the statue became a large mountain that filled the entire earth. This was the dream. Now we will set forth before the king as interpretation. Now notice the we there. The we there. Verse 37. You, O king, are king of kings. The God of heaven has granted you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. Wherever human beings, wild animals, and birds of the sky live, he has given them into your power. He has given you authority over them all. You are the head of gold. So he makes it very clear. You are what you are because God gave that to you. You've built an empire to glorify yourself. You are what you are because God gave that to you. You're gold, you're phenomenal, but God gave that all to you. After you. And remember, that's the key here. He doesn't say after the kingdom of Babylon. He doesn't say the gold is Babylon, and after Babylon will come the next. He says the head is you, and after you will come another kingdom. Now, after you, another kingdom will arise, one inferior to yours. Then the third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule in all the earth. This is important to understand. If you believe the second metal, silver, is the Medo-Persian Empire, then it does not make sense for Daniel to say, one is in, the one after you is inferior to you. Persia was not inferior to Babylon. Persia was considered far greater than Babylon. Babylon was the greatest thing the world had ever seen to that point. And Persia became next. I mean, they both, they both have like the trophy there on the best empires ever. But Persia blew Babylon away. Blew Babylon away. So it does not make sense for this second metal 
to be the Medo-Persian Empire because it was not inferior to Babylon. It was greater than Babylon. Likewise, he says that the third kingdom will rule all the earth. The Greek empire. So if you believe the third kingdom is the Greek empire, the Greek empire didn't rule all the earth. The Greek empire went all the way to India for a couple years, but then it lost it all. And it didn't really rule all the earth in the way the Persian Empire did and for how long it did. See, Alexander the Great conquered very quickly across here, but within like basically three years of conquering everything, he died and it all was broken up. It all got broken up and the Seleucids lost a lot of this. And so I don't have that map for you, but the Seleucids basically controlled Babylon. Then the Ptolemies controlled Egypt. And then Cassander and Lysimachus divided Greece up. That's not the whole entire world. That's not one kingdom ruling everything. And even if you put them all together, which you, most scholars believe, all scholars believe you can't because they're constantly fighting each other at the time, they, even then they weren't ruling the whole world. So it doesn't make sense. But if you believe this is the Medo-Persian Empire, that makes sense. Because the Medo-Persian Empire was inferior compared to Babylon. And they were passed over very quickly. And then the Persian Empire comes along as the third metal, and they did rule the entire earth. And in that sense, and knows how Daniel skips over the second empire very quickly, too. He actually spends more time talking about the first, the third, and the fourth empire than he does the second. Which makes sense because the Median Persian Empire, the Median Empire didn't last very long either. So if you really if once we have a better understanding of history, we begin to realize this actually kind of makes sense. Verse 40, then there will be a fourth kingdom, one strong like iron, just like iron breaks to pieces and shatters everything, as iron breaks in pieces all the metals. So it'll break in pieces and crush the others. Now that does fit the Greeks. That fits the Greeks because the Greeks did smash everything. See, when the Babylonians took over, they just took over the Assyrian Empire, but they didn't break the Assyrian Empire apart because they were very similar. Even when the Medes came along, they didn't smash the Babylonians because the Babylonians were still existing in some kind of a power. And when the Persians came along, they didn't smash the Median Empire because they were the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Persians didn't smash Babylon either and break them up because Babylon still had great influence. Persia didn't smash anybody. Persia actually allowed everybody to return to their homes and rebuild their empires. The Medians didn't smash everybody. The Persians didn't smash everybody. They actually rebuilt everything up. And the Romans didn't smash everybody either. If that's the fourth metal, they didn't smash everybody. Because even though they conquered everybody, the Romans actually absorbed everybody. They were like the biggest plagiarizers of all of human history. They just took, they didn't have their own unique identity. They absorbed everybody else. Like, oh, that's cool. Let's take that. Oh, that's cool. The only thing they had unique was a government. And even that was largely based on the Greeks. The only person that really smashed everybody was the Greeks. Remember I told you Alexander the Great did not believe that any culture had any validity whatsoever? And he actually went in and he smashed the Babylonians and broke them apart. He smashed the Persians and broke them apart. He went into India and started smashing them. He smashed Asia and he began to replace them. And then he brought his men into these countries and made them take women, and they took women by force and married them so they could breed Greek children and put those Greek children in power and start making everybody Greek. It's called Hellenization. 
And they started making everybody think and act like Greeks all throughout the world. And most cultures have been influenced with a Greek way of thinking. He did try to smash everybody and get rid of them. And that fits. And so this language, once you understand this, kind of fits with all this stuff. And that you were seeing feet and toes, partly of wet clay and partly of iron. So this will be a divided kingdom. Some of the strength of the iron will be in it, for you saw iron mixed with wet clay. And that the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay. And the latter stages of this kingdom will be partly strong and partly fragile. And as you saw the iron mixed with clay, so the people will be mixed with one another and without adhering to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And the days of those kings, the God of heaven, will raise up on every lasting kingdom that will not be destroyed and the kingdom that will not be left to another. Now notice how much time he spends on the clay and the iron. And he keeps repeating over and over again that they will be mixed. This is, he says literally it's divided into two stages a very strong stage, the iron, and a weak, divided stage of the iron clay. That makes sense. Alexander the Great's empire was incredibly strong, very powerful, unstoppable. They lost no battles, not one battle. Later when we get along, we're going to be told that the fourth beast loses no battles. The Roman Empire lost a lot of battles, lost a lot of battles. They won and lost, and won and lost, and slowly etched their way into power over a long fight through the Carthaginian Wars, or what's called the Punic Wars, and then the Macedonian Wars, fighting the Greeks, and then they went against the Ptolemies, and then the Seleucids. It was a long, drawn-out battle for them to become what they did. The Greeks smashed the world in three years, and they lost no battles. That fits this empire. The other thing that says is Nosite said that the, the, the Greeks intermarried with everybody. And they, tried, they, they diluted the bloodlines of all these cultures. That mixes this, this iron and clay mixing together. The clay of all these nations that are weak being mixed with the iron of the Greeks, but then becoming watered down themselves and becoming weaker. And that is, not only was that a very good way to make everybody think like Greeks, but it actually began to erode people's strength and their unity with each other. And the world completely changed after the Hellenization. It also, because these empires became very weak, it laid the road, the Greek empire laid the road for lots of things to come for Christ and prepared that. And so he says it is here in verse 44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will raise up an everlasting kingdom that will not be destroyed and a kingdom that will not be left to another people. It will break in pieces and bring about the demise of all the kingdoms, but it will stand forever. You saw that a stone was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It smashed the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold into pieces the great God has made known to the king what will occur in the future. The dream is certain and its interpretation is reliable. So this little rock, now this is very powerful. There's a rock. All throughout the Bible, the rock is always God. All throughout the First Testament, it's always God. The first place you see the rock is when Moses is in the wilderness leading the Jews out of Egypt. And they go through the wilderness and God provides them water and that he purifies the water at Marah. And then he provides them bread from heaven, that kind of stuff. And then they come to the desert and they're like, we're still going to die. God doesn't care about us. We're all going to die of thirst. 
God says, go to the rock and strike the rock and water will come out. Now, I already talked about this in Exodus. When I was a little kid, you remember flannel graph? And the teacher would like have that green board and they would throw that thing up there and it would stick there. And you were like, that's so cool. And now we got like 3D and all that kind of stuff. She threw this up and Moses was his staff and he struck this teeny little rock on the ground and this like little drinking fountain thing came out. And they were like, ooh, that's so cool. And then I got older and realized, wait a minute, there were hundreds of thousands of people there. That's the longest line for the drinking fountain like ever. Like that's not practical. Then I realized in the Hebrew that word rock is more like a mountain. Like it's a mountain. And when Moses struck the mountain, the mountain split open and a river came gushing out kind of an idea. And then you know that you're like, oh, that's not all right there, is there? Well, the word rock is mountain there. And the way that word rock is used all throughout the Bible, alluding back to numbers, is used in a mountainous sense. And when God alludes back to that river of water or that water comes out in the Psalms and stuff, he's alluding, he calls it a river. And when you go through Psalms, it's the rock. And so God makes it very clear, I am the rock that provides life. So then you see him come down on the rock, Mount Sinai, and he portrays his glory and light and everything. And then and the Psalms really pick this up when they say, the Lord is my rock and I hide in him as my refuge. And he protects me from the storms and he provides me a home. And you see the imagery over and over and over again. Then when Jesus comes along, he says, the wise man builds his house on the rock. He's talking about God. And he he uses analogy too. But then he starts concluding to himself being the rock. And all throughout the Bible, only God is the rock. This is a very common theme and symbol that all the Jews know, especially after Psalms. David uses it so much. So Daniel comes along and says, a little rock was cut from the mountain. Mount Sinai. The rock that split open provided water. God Almighty. There's going to be a piece of him that's going to be cut from his side, so to speak, metaphorically. And this little rock is going to come pummeling down on the earth and slam into the base of the feet. And it's going to hit the statue so hard, it's not going to crush the feet and the thing is just going to topple over. It's going to hit it so hard, the whole statue will explode and just turn into little pieces and become nothing. And then the little rock is going to grow into a mountain that will fill the entire earth. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts off as the smallest seed that we as Jews in this world know about. But then it grows into the largest tree in all of the world that we know about in Israel. Jesus is the rock. And that's why he goes to Peter and says, on this rock, pointing to himself, I will build my church. The Catholics make it about Peter, but it's not. There's this thing, okay, now I'm going to get all like nerdy on you in English. There's this thing called a remote demonstrative and a near demonstrative. A remote demonstrative is those and that far away. A near demonstrative is these and this close by. Christ says on this rock, I will build my church. And you know that it's not Peter and it's Jesus because when Peter writes his own letter in 1 Peter, he says Christ is the living rock and we're all being built into it. 
And he is the cornerstone, and we're being built on it. So Peter, he believed that Jesus was saying, Jesus, not him. And so Jesus is the rock. And that's what Daniel's saying. Now, Daniel doesn't know anything about Jesus, but he does know the Messiah. And he's saying that this kingdom will turn into an everlasting kingdom. And it, Now, this is huge. So the metals, right? Different metals, right? But are they separate metals and different statues? They're all in one statue. So what point is God making by having a bunch of different metals in one statue? All the metals are different kingdoms. He told you that very clearly, but they're in one statue. What's the point? Ultimately, it's one kingdom. What God is saying is it's one kingdom. You historically think it's a different kingdom and a different kingdom and a different kingdom. And God's saying it's all the same thing. It's the kingdom of man. This begins in Genesis. The Bible is the tale of two cities. If you've ever read that book. That book is a great book, though. Um, It's the tale of two cities. The first city, so God builds a Garden of Eden, and we are kicked out of that Garden of Eden. And we're kicked into a world of chaos because of the fall, and we don't rule and subdue the chaos and order it because we have fallen ourselves. And one would think, oh my goodness, what is going to happen? The kingdom of man comes along, and Cain murders a man, and then his descendants build a city, and they build a city, and then the whole world becomes evil, and everything is going down the drain, and humans gather together, and they build the first city ever called Babylon, the Tower of Babylon. and the Hebrew, it says Babylon, not Babel. It's the Tower of Babylon. They build this city. And at that moment, they've said, we are making a name for ourselves. Humans are awesome. And we're anti-God. <laughs> so that's what they do. And God stoops down and says, this is so pathetic and you're so far away. Boom! And scatters them and confuses their language and they're just hopelessly lost. That begins the, 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 king, the one city, the kingdom. Then God goes to Abraham he walks away from the nation and says, I'm done with you. You're evil, wicked people. You only think only evil all the time. Genesis 6. And he goes to Abraham. He says, I'm going to pick you. And I'm going to build a new kingdom, a new nation. And I will put my name on you. Name is character. I'm going to put my character on you. And it'll be like you. And that begins the second city. And all throughout the Bible, there are these two kingdoms. The kingdom of man, which is all the nations and the kingdom of God, which is Israel. And God wants Israel to bring as many people from the kingdom of man in. And the kingdom of man is always trying to send up, build world empires, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, that kind of stuff, America, the United Nations. Okay, The United Nations' official tag is many people, one tongue. And their official symbol, or the European Union's official symbol, is the Tower of Babel. And what they've been constantly doing is they're trying to make the world small again. Let's all gather together and speak a common language, have a common government and a common system so we can all become great again. Everybody's trying to undo the multiple languages, undoing the scattering, the undoing that we can't be unified anymore. We are the earth, we are the world, hands around it, all that kind of stuff, right? But at the same time, Jesus is doing his own thing, but he's doing it differently. He's doing it through simple people and simple means and starting off small. And he builds his kingdom of Israelites 
And then one day he sends the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes down on them and they all start speaking different languages and everybody understands them as if they're speaking one language. And what God is saying is, I do want you to be unified, but I want you to be unified under me. You're trying to be unified under yourself. And all throughout the Bible, there's this imagery, and that's what Revelation is. There's Babylon, which is the kingdom of man. 666 is the number of man, according to Revelation. But then the kingdom of Jesus comes and brings the kingdom of God on earth and destroys it. And all throughout the Bible, there's a tale of two cities. Even Isaiah, when we went through Isaiah, remember? There's the lofty city that's destruction, and then there's the, the new city, the new Jerusalem, which is life. And what God is saying is, all of these kingdoms is really the same kingdom. It's the kingdom of man. And notice the statue looks like an idol. Nebuchadnezzar is glorifying himself. He's made himself an idol. And he's glorifying it all. And it's shiny. And it's beautiful. And it's wealthy. And strong. And it's attractive. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Who wouldn't want to pay tickets to see this? And it's all the things that man wants. And get it easily destroyed by a simple rock that grows into becoming the kingdom of God that's way bigger than the statue ever was. And that's what God's going to do to the kingdom of man. And he's going to replace it with the kingdom of God. But not just that. Notice that each of the metals decrease in value. Silver is not as valuable as gold. Bronze is not as valuable as silver. Iron is not as valuable as bronze. But they increase in strength as they go down. They become more powerful. Iron is way more powerful than gold. You can bite into gold and put dents in it. Iron is a sword. So as they increase in power and become more and more and more and more powerful, they actually become less and less valuable. They become less, their worth becomes diminished. As we begin to focus on ourselves and say, look at what we're building. Look how amazing it is. And our technology increases, and our knowledge increases, and our power increases, our ability to control elements and resources and do things that nobody has ever been able to do. We actually become less and less valuable because we're eroding the image of God in us. We're killing it. We're, we're losing the focus on God. And the, what makes us worthy is God. Remember, the dollar bill has no value except what we say it has. The only value we have is what God says. You can put your value and your athletic ability, but one day you will get a knee injury or a back injury and you won't have that anymore. You can put your value in your, your brain, but eventually you'll start having dementia or lose your thoughts or you can't keep remembering things anymore. You can put in your looks, but eventually that will go away. You can put in your success, but eventually you're going to leave your success to a ding-dong and who knows what they'll do with it. The book of Ecclesiastes. You put your value in all these external things. And they will pass away. You put your value in yourself and just who you are. But what makes you any different than anybody else? Your value comes from what God says you are. And who you are to God. And what he's willing to do to have you in a relationship. Your value is in your relationship with God. And as they become more and more full of themselves and their success and power and all that kind of stuff, they become less and less valuable. And we turn ourselves into idols. And we turn our things into idols. And then notice that the height of their power and strength, that's when the very simple, unimpressive rock destroys them. But then becomes the most amazing thing the world has ever seen. And notice that it's not cut by human hands. 
This parable. Whenever the pagans build things, they cut it with their human hands. They craft it and fashion it into their own image. And in Exodus, God says, build an altar to God. And when you build this altar, you are not allowed to cut the stones with any tool or fashion it with your hands. Why? Because I don't want you to build an altar to me as God and think, wow, I did a really good job with that. Because that's what we do, right? No matter what we build. It's okay to build art and paint pictures and make music to God. God wants you to do that. But even then we get tempted and we think, yeah, that's such a good song. And we're glorifying God with it, but we're also thinking like, but I want everybody to know I wrote this. But you can't, that's fine. I know it's not fine, but God's not forbidden. But when it comes to the altar where you're atoning for your sins, that cannot be your handiwork. It's one thing to present your works to God and do your best to not become prideful about it. It's another thing that you're trying to sacrifice and atone for your becoming so prideful by building an altar with your own works and efforts that you'll become prideful about. And God says, do not fashion this. This is fashioned by me. I formed those rocks. And it's my works. Now you atone for your sins and works on this altar. And God says, this kingdom is like that altar. It's not built by human hands. And the atonement that this rock is going to bring is not human atonement. And what God is clearly showing is that this rock is drastically different than this statue in every way. It's not as impressive, but it's way more powerful. It doesn't look as big, but it'll last for eternity. It's not crafted with man's skill and wisdom, but it turns out to be a much more impressive thing. Do not idolize your empires, your kingdoms, your accomplishments, because you will lose your value, and eventually you will be destroyed along with it. Men are like grass being burned in the fire. Isaiah. This is the kingdom of God. And this is what makes his vision so powerful. And yes, in some ways it doesn't matter what these empires are, But what makes it so cool is that when you study these empires, they are amazing. We have never really built anything like the Persians and the Greeks. Yet it is nothing compared to the little rock that turns into the greatest mountain. And all kings fall. I forget the name of the movie, but there's this movie with, um, oh, I forget what it was. It was like a Dead Poet Society new version of it. And he, he basically has this guy read this inscription of this king. I am the great whatever. All kingdoms fell before me. I built my empire. No one could withstand me. And he says, who was that guy? And none of the kids in the class have any idea who the guy is. And he's like, see? He built a kingdom that was so impressive that everybody thought he was so awesome. But in the sands of time, nobody even knows who he is. History is full of dead, forgotten kings. And even Nebuchadnezzar... You only remember him in a name with a few facts, not as a person and not as someone that you actually seen with your own eyes and you're reaping the benefits of what he built. It's all lost in the sands of time. Whatever you invest in in this world will eventually collapse. Now, I hope to God that America doesn't collapse because it is truly one of the greatest nations to raise children in and feel safe and secure. But one day it will. And one day it will pass away. And whatever he places will pass away. That's why we're part of the city of God. We're part of the city of God. And that's what Daniel's saying to Nebuchadnezzar. Are you going to continue to be the gold head? Because eventually you will fall. Or are you going to join the kingdom of God? Then King Nebuchadnezzar 
Verse 46, bowed down with his face to the ground and paid homage to Daniel. He gave orders to offer sacrifice and incense to him. The king replied to Daniel, Certainly your God is a God of gods and Lord and kings kings and revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. Now, him bowing down to Daniel is not him worshiping Daniel. It's not uncommon for people to bow down and honor people. That's just like bowing to somebody and honoring them. And burning the incense to him, there's no way Nebuchadnezzar would burn incense to Daniel. Most likely he sees Daniel like a priest. And he's presenting his incense to Daniel and presenting his bowing down to Daniel because Daniel's the mediator between Nebuchadnezzar and Yahweh. He's recognized that Yahweh worked through Daniel to interpret the dream that nobody else could do. So he's offering his honor and incense through Daniel as a priest to God. And so Daniel's functioning as a priest. Now, he's not taking the office of priesthood. It's just the way Nebuchadnezzar is seeing him and viewing him. And you're not responsible for the actions of other people. Then the king elevated Daniel to a high position and bestowed on him many marvelous gifts. He granted with authority over the entire province of Babylon and made him the main prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Joseph. He basically does to him what he did to Joseph. Well, what Pharaoh did to Joseph. And Daniel's request, the king, appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon, and Daniel himself served in his king's court. He brought his friends with him. Look, don't go into positions of power alone. You will be corrupted. He brings men that he knows are men of prayer, and he brings them with him because he knows he cannot stand in a corrupt nation all by himself without men or women who will surround him in prayer and hold him accountable. And he makes sure they come with him. This isn't I'm bringing my friends with them, whether me, whether they're qualified or not. This is I need them because they are qualified. They know how to pray. They know how to pray. Now notice that they are now no longer called Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They're now called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I have no idea why Daniel's constantly called Daniel all the way through. And it's like Daniel, also kind of known as Belteshazzar. But then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah for a chapter and a half. And then from that point on, they're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I have no idea. I have not read or seen anything of anybody explaining that. Now notice that Nebuchadnezzar lifts him up and he praises Yahweh, the God of all gods. Do you believe him? No, why? Because it's chapter 3, right? <laughs> Yet, didn't Yah- did Nebuchadnezzar move a little bit closer to Yahweh? Yeah. Sometimes I get so frustrated, like these kids are going forward again. They're going forward again. They're going forward again. This should be a real. If this is truly real, they want to keep going forward all over again. And then my principal, Buzz, in his great wisdom, said, yeah, but at least they're responding to God. And each time they go forward, they're moving. Maybe it wasn't the total commitment to God that you would want to see when they go forward, but they're moving a little bit closer each time. And they could just sit there and say, forget this, but they don't. They respond. So their heart is showing that they're responding. And every time they go forward, they're moving just a little bit closer and a little bit closer until finally They'll make a dedication, and it'll be real, and it'll stay, and the doubts will begin to dissolve away over time. And I was like, wow, that's so awesome. <laughs> and yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, you're like, what the heck? You're such a liar because of chapter 3. But at least he responded, and he moved a little bit closer. Don't be discouraged by your neighbors and friends who seem to move closer, and then you look later, and you're like, There's nothing changed. 
all that I, all you said and everything I said seemed to be wasted because they could be moving a little bit closer in their heart and a little bit closer. And then one of these days, what they say is going to stick. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, when we get to chapter 4, it's going to stick. And so he moves a little bit closer. So this passage, in conclusion, each chapter presents a conflict that they're dealing with. Remember the conflict, the last one had more to do with Daniel's conscience. Now the conflict is people actually, you're going to die. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were actually going to die. But they weren't, going to, they weren't facing death because the government was against them. This is still not anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, anti-people of faith. This is the government's going to just kill a bunch of people, and they're just unfortunately and unintentionally caught up in it. Okay, that one we can kind of relate to right now. We feel like we're being swept up in this whirlwind of things, and nothing makes sense to us. And it's affecting our lives, and we don't know what to believe anymore about this, and shelter in place, and mask, and government. And we're so confused. I feel like we're more confused than we ever have been on what's really going on. And nobody's directly attacking us. We're just caught up in the chaos and the confusion. This conflict that these men are facing with is not an attack. It's not an oppression. It's nothing personally against them. It's not anti-faith. It's just Nebuchadnezzar has gone chaotic, and a whole bunch of people are being swept up in it. And this is how they responded. And they responded in prayer. They didn't get angry and yell and scream at the government. This is so unjust. How could you do this? I wasn't even there. This is unfair. This doesn't even apply to me. They prayed. They didn't protest and insult and ask for a new king. They prayed. And they let their faith in God, and they let God use them, and God used them to change things because they surrendered in prayer, and they let God speak through them, and they used kind, polite words, but they were confident and knowledgeable in what they were saying. And God changed their culture, environment, the threat as a result of that. I think we're living in a time period where Daniel's like a great example to start teaching us how we respond to this stuff. I am guilty of complaining. I am guilty of immediately, this is not cool. And reading through Daniel has really been convicting in my own life, like there's a different way to do it. And then I really found myself as a result of this last several months and reading Daniel and studying it over the summer. My wife and I have been praying for our government more than I have in my entire life and praying for our school and our culture and everything. Normally it's like, oh yeah, we should pray for our governments, Romans. But I really mean it now. And I really are feeling it in a way that I never have. And it's largely because of what we are in right now and the timing of Daniel coming into my life. I mean, I've gone through Daniel multiple times, but really digging in and doing this has really helped. This is how we are to respond. And as a result, they had a powerful influence on the most blinded, corrupted, narcissistic king of that Babylonian empire. And in chapter 4, he's going to change. And that's the powerful message. You can change anybody with prayer and polite love and determined wisdom. That's the message of Daniel. Yahweh, we thank you so much for who you are and the amazing God that you are. 
And I pray that we would be able to take this and allow your spirit to transform us and guide us, give us hope and peace that no matter what kingdom we're a part of, no matter what we feel, whether it's a virus or a government or our financial standing or our health or whatever it is, that we know ultimately the little rock is growing in our hearts, it's growing in our world, and eventually it will be the kingdom of God on earth. And that is something that we're not looking, just looking forward to the future, but it's something that we can experience right now in our life as the Spirit is in us, like Daniel experienced it right then in his life. In Jesus' name, amen.